Friends, thank you for joining us for another episode of the Citizen Stewart Show. Today, our guest is Jay Artis Wright. She's the CEO of the Freedom Coalition for Charter Schools. It's a nonpartisan organization that advocates for the equitable access to quality education. Specifically, she is focused on building power in black and brown communities so that we are able to advocate for ourselves to get the best education for our kids. We hope you enjoy the show. Jay Artist Wright, welcome to the Citizen Stewart Show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I really love having you here, number one, because we have lots of talks, you know, privately that we don't get to like share our brilliance with the world publicly. So I think it's <laughs> a very important time actually to have you on because I'm thinking a lot about next year as we go into 2024. I'm thinking about what we need to do to prepare ourselves to have power. And by us, I mean our parents, the parents who are not getting enough of the glow of the media. We are talking a lot about parents' rights. And I always feel left out of that, Jay. That discussion, just be very honest with you, I just feel left out. I don't feel like I'm part of the parents' group. What I love about your background, having worked with Parent Revolution, having worked you know, at the local levels and the state levels, and having been involved in kind of fights nationally, all of your fights have been around how do we gain power? Yep, absolutely. So tell me, as you think about 2024, like what's top of mind for you, for our parents and the parents that we really care about? So I think you named it in the sense of like understanding where their power rests and how we can educate them about that power and how they can execute on that power and really using a landscape like the elections to just show the value of their power. I think that the 2024 elections, most people... I am predicting mainly that it's not going to be not on the landslide victory that we think it's going to be, but also there may be small turnout. And so like, we've got to figure out a way to motivate people to even get to the polls. And so a huge part of that is being able to get them to understand how influential their vote is going to be, not only on the national level, but on the local level, because there's a lot of local races coming up too. And so it's really important for parents to understand that that power dynamic. There's so many cases where it's not just about the vote. It's just about how your vote can influence things, right? And it's sad that a lot of families still don't understand that. They just think they just got this one vote or they'll say, oh, my vote doesn't count. Completely misinterpreting what it means to even be a registered voter, for example. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so when I talk about power, it's about being able to get them to understand that. And it's also about getting the stakeholders and these lawmakers to understand that. Like, we got to make some examples out of some of these lawmakers, just just real talk. Like, there are some people who have really just shown, can I cuss? <laughs> Whatever you need to say. <laughs> they have showed their entire ass. You know, they have acted in a way that they appear to be untouchable. They've been in these positions where they've completely disrespected our parents. And, you know, our parents need to keep a short list of that and be reminded of that when it's time to go to the polls. And this is an opportunity going into this next cycle where they can leverage that. Like, remember that time when you showed up to that school board hearing or that Senate hearing and they totally dismissed you and didn't give you a chance to speak? Guess what? That person's up for election next year. You know, show up and make sure that they remember who you are. Things like that, I think, are important. What do you think are some ways that they've taken us for granted? I definitely think well, you know, FCCS speaks for, you know, black and brown families specifically, and I'll talk specifically about black families right now. You know, black vote has been completely taken for granted forever since the beginning of time. But I think even more so, I'm a little bit upset with, you know, just how the Biden administration has showed up, to be honest with you. Like, I mean, we kind of know that South Carolina was a big pivot for him. 
And that pivot came from black moms, black women coming to the polls for him and making sure that he showed up. And yeah, we, you gave us Kamala. That's great. Is it though? Well, yeah, that's, well, yeah. Is it though? Um, she's a vice president. I mean, that's true. That's true. History making. But here's the thing for the black vote. I think that it has definitely been taken for granted. I think that they look at us as monoliths, that we will always vote Democratic regardless. And I think that that narrative is changing. You know, in the concept of education, we've always just been focused on the little minute of us who are either able to get access to a private school, not paying attention to now, you know, I think since COVID, We've got more Black families that are choosing not to send their kids back to a public school. They're going a homeschooling route. And parents who exercise that type of energy for their kids are definitely going to show up to the polls. So it's like, you know, you shouldn't ignore that, you know, that population. And those populations are coming out of these metropolitan areas like, you know, D.C. and Philly and Indianapolis and places where we know Black families are are starting to really pay more attention to what's happening. So yes, we have been taken for granted. I think even for the Latino population, I mean, this is one of the most growing populations in this country. The same thing to think that we are all monolithic in our thinking around our issues is just short-sighted and kind of tone deaf, to be honest with you. No, you did a lot of work in California. I think California is super interesting as like this microcosm. You know, you've got, it's, it's almost like a, a, you know, a hegemony, a democratic hegemony from top to the bottom. You got lots of cool stuff going on in California, of course, that I think is a bellwether for the rest of the country. It's kind of like the counterbalance to Texas and Florida. You know, California's got its own thing going on, right? (laughs) Yeah. But just, you know, because you have watched so many of these political people, what do you think actually is in it for them to just ignore having an education agenda for people that desperately need one? Like, what do they get out of that? Just being ignorant to it. They almost act like they don't have to have a strong answer for what do we do about kids that are suffering in schools that are not teaching them. Like we have so many kids that are trapped in places where they're not learning. What do you get as a representative of that area where those schools are for not having any plan? I mean, how are you rewarded with office? Yeah. That, <laughs> I don't know if I can answer that question directly or, or pro- I will try to give you my best answer to that. And I think it has a lot to do with the other side of what we're talking about. So you're talking about just general policy and just understanding the right to an education and what does it mean to be educated? The flip side of that is the politics, which is pretty much what's informing what we're seeing happening. I mean, you think of a state like California, I mean, the big political mavericks or what have you in California are the teachers union and, you know, also the correction facilities unions. And they, by way, shape a lot of the information that's happening. And here's the complicated reason why. So California's had a a series of term limits, at least for the past 20 years, there's been different iterations of term limits. And so you think about that and you are basically moving away from being a public servant and more just being a career politician. Like, how can I continue to keep myself sustainable for the next two years, four years, and keep this repetitive? And I think that's to our own detriment. I mean, California has the ballot initiative process, which is the engine by which a lot of these things were able to happen. And I think 
you know, intentions were good, but the impact has been that you've now created, you know, huge gaps in what a public servant looks like. On one hand, you have someone who's either been a career professional who's retired, who can sustain a little bit of heat because they're either financially wealthy, like in the case of Newsom, for example, or they're just protected by either, you know, these the strong special interests who they concede to. And on the other hand, you have kind of like these idealistic young people who are coming in who have really broad ideas, but really limited understanding or 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 seasoned professionalism to understand how you get in there and actually really maneuver around. And so when it comes to creating policy, the groups are so different that you've got one group that's doing something completely on the behalf of special interest or because they are protected and there's really no way to get them out of there. So the accountability is gone. And you've got the other one that's just fighting to survive. And a lot of this was created because anyone like you and I in our right minds wouldn't run for public office. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, again, I'm, I'm, I worked in California last. So California, they don't have a pension anymore. So if you run for public office and, you know, you you spend your two years, four years, whatever term, those two or four years don't account for any retirement for you. So like you got to keep the ball rolling, you know what I mean? So the intention, the t- intentionality around being a public servant has changed. And this is my long-winded answer to like people just have gotten comfortable and there's no more accountability where I can directly impact your position. People will say it's directly impacted by you, you know, having an, a new term coming up every 2 or 4 years, but the reality is that Unfortunately, that's on the onus of us where we don't pay attention that often to be able to go back and say, oh, wait a minute, I got to follow it with you again. I feel like I rambled on that one, but I'm so passionate about like all of this politics stuff that I'm just hoping that came through clear. (laughs) No, no, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, they want to be comfortable. They want to win. They just need to do what they need to do to stay in office. Right. And it sounds like some of the political forces that will keep them there don't want change (laughs) in the systems. Right. Do not want change. Yeah. Yeah, No, that's real. I mean, and I guess I should just be less politically correct and just name that. Like the reality of it is the system is set up so that they don't have to do change. They don't have to worry about change. Let's just let's just stay the course. Let's just deal with the status quo because that's comfortable. It's nice. It doesn't rock the boat any. And we all win. You know what I mean? When you're talking about systemic change in our education system, that requires work. <laughs> and people don't want to put in that type of work. And I, and I also think outside of California, and, and we've heard this a lot, just in the last couple of months, I've been doing a lot of traveling, talking with lawmakers and school leaders, and something that's come up often with our lawmakers specifically, again, these are the younger ones who are now still trying to be influential and idealistic. They're like, one, I didn't realize that I had to vote with the caucus. I thought that I could come in as an independent representative of my constituents and have a say. Like, So there's some naivete about like, how you even come into these legislative positions. The other thing is the fear that like we've got this cancel culture. Like if I don't do something right, I'm going to be primaried. Like that's a real thing. And that's specifically happening a lot in our black and brown communities where our representatives really have this fear that if I don't vote in the way that everyone else thinks I should, then they're the, the people who are supposed to be on my side, my party affiliates themselves are going to come after me. Which is a, a nuance that I'm like, wait a minute, when do we when did that start being how we do politics? Yeah, I think what's really tough about that, and you're working on this issue, is that there needs to be a progressive reckoning. <laughs> so so I think for a lot of African Americans, for a lot of black folk, for a lot of brown folk, it's just a non starter that they're gonna switch and, and vote Republican for any reason. Right. And I think we work on education 
so much that we think education is really a motivator for votes. And it's not. In the United States, education is the dog of the issue in the United States. Nobody cares about no education. I'm sorry, nobody does. Like, yeah, yeah. Well, whatever. That could be a whole nother show about the dumbing of America. But <laughs> like, but we are going dumb in a big way and nobody cares about education. Now, people are going to correct me when they listen to this and say, but no, some are breaking off and voting Republican. Listen, that's never going to happen in big numbers. I'm sorry. I just I, I want to like, you know, dispense with the nonsense. You are going to peel off two or three percent of people that hate their their own people that are going to go that route and do that. Good for them. They're either like wealthy people of color who don't care about none of the cultural stuff and just want the, the tax break or the ones who don't like themselves and they just need to join a team that don't like us either. Anyways, that's just me with my commentary. I'm not saying that you saying that. Well, that's a small percentage too, though. Yeah, that's a small percentage. <laughs> so for, the, but that doesn't mean that we stay in a place though, also where we're being taken for granted on something so important as education. Now, years ago, my organization did a report called The Shame of Progressive Cities. And we compared progressive cities to conservative cities. And wouldn't you know that if you are a black child in public schools, you are better off in the conservative cities than you are in the progressive cities. And the worst of the progressive cities, one of the worst offenders was San Francisco. Super wealthy, super progressive, liberal as hell. This is what you mentioned Newsom earlier. This is where Newsom came from. He's very telegenic and likable. And he's, you know, he's the like progressive darling. And he, like San Francisco, has no answer for why are we doing so poorly with children of color in these schools and why isn't somebody doing there has to be a reckoning with progressive maybe we're not going to jump ship but maybe we just don't show up and then what yeah well the sad thing about that reckoning is the arrogance of the progressives right because i think it's two things i think what you just named like as you were naming Newsom as kind of like the model of like our progressive <laughs> American. It's like, really? This dude was kind of born with a silver spoon in his mouth, grew up in San Francisco, pretty much had his whole transition shaped for him. He's so smooth though. But 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 that but that's that's the thing. That's the smoke and mirrors of it, right? Because that's who we're looking at as the progressive voice for us. So that in itself is a disconnect because he, you know, he sent his kids to private school. He's so, like you said, he's just, he's so good to look at. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? He's just so handsome. Yeah, yeah. Of course you want to believe what he has mm -hmm. to say. But okay, but then look at that dynamic. Like he is completely tone deaf and out of touch to what is happening in our most atrocious public schools right in his backyard. San Francisco being the example. I think I mentioned this on another series that like, I remember campaigning for like a local person. They were running for like public defender in San Francisco and we got the voter files and we're, you know, doing our canvassing and I'm looking at the map of like all these registered voters. And there was this area, it's like the projects of San Francisco, believe it or not, they do have those. I can't remember the name of the area, but it was one, it was the projects of San Francisco. And two was where mostly the heavily populated black residents lived. There was like one or two people registered to vote in that whole community. So we didn't go there. We did not knock on any doors. We did not give any door tags. We didn't tell them anything about their local public defender that's running. And I guarantee you that is probably the same strategy that they use every time because it's like they don't exist. It's this silent voice. Like we don't have to, you know, tap into that place because they're not coming to the polls anyway, which is back to my original point. Like I'm only going to cater to those that I know that are going to give me a vote. And 
those who don't, I'm not even concerned about them because they don't matter. You're saying like from their perspective, they don't think so. Mm -hmm. But what you just said that I think is something that people won't pick up on is that those parents in places like San Francisco and other cities like that, Seattle and Portland and other places like that, the contingent of the people that they do have to listen to are not necessarily asking for school choice outside of the system. They're not looking for vouchers or any of that. What they're looking for is to have public schools that serve just them. So if you look at San Francisco, San Francisco ran a whole recall effort. And that recall wasn't about getting black kids a better education. That recall effort was about tech bros getting better access to public schools, not private schools where they have to pay tuition, but public schools that feel private. And that's who the Democrats in those cities feel like they have to respond to people who vote who have social power, political power, and they're not necessarily looking for anything other than uh, great public schools that serve just them. You know California very well. How could you build power in a place like San Francisco, San Jose, Los Angeles amongst Black folks if that's the makeup of the party? So using what you just described as far as the San Francisco Unified recall of those, I think it was like three or four school board members, that in itself is a case study because the majority of parents that were involved in that recall, they were either attorneys by trade or they, you know, they had, they were something else other than being a parent, but they showed up as a parent. And I think that that is something that I always try to remind people about. Like even from my perspective, yes, I'm a CEO of a national organization, but I'm a parent of three kids. And if I get engaged leading with that, that is itself is so powerful that people miss it. And so I think that that's a good case study. Like professionals have to show up as parents and do it in a way that is very strategic to be able to say that like, okay, I think in the past, what we've seen is I'm okay with my child. I can afford to send my child to private school. I can write that check and be done with it. But what happened from COVID is that, wait a minute, like, nah, there is something that systemically is happening in these schools that I'm not happy about. And I've been bamboozled. I've been hoodwinked. I did not see this. And now that I see it, I can't ignore it. And so that's what happened in the case of San Francisco that actually evolved into, quote unquote, some of these progressive parents really stepping into spaces more. And I can't think of, there's a woman who actually started her own organization who actually works with um, one of our our Black parents who've been leading in the space, like Keisha Young with the Oakland Reach, there's another woman that she works with. But like, even that example of like Keisha and Oakland Reach, you had parents who were like, all right, you're not going to teach my kid for three months? Bet. I'm about to sit here, build myself a hub, get some folks locally to take care of me and my babies throughout the, you know, throughout that eight, eight hour work week that you're supposed to be helping us, eight hour work day. And so I think that that is the narrative that has, is changing and is changing more frequently than we want to acknowledge. I think, you know, the media wants us to focus on, you know, these more sexy, controversial groups like Moms of Liberty, right? But I've been saying for a long time, like, Moms of Liberty just came into this game. And, you know, be it good, bad, or indifferent, there have been Black moms, Latino moms, you know, i.e. Parent Revolution, the organization that I used to be with, that have been fighting for options, public school options for our kids for 14, 15 years. And so we have to get those professionals to step into the space of being a parent. One of the things that our organization is trying to do is to talk with more organizations like Jack and Jill and like the um, AAUs and the Black sororities and fraternity groups because they lead their own 
you know, educational kind of social justice clubs in different in different capacities. But as you mentioned earlier, like education is always missed. And what I've been trying to say and what I will continue to say is, you know, as a black person, even when you send your child to the most prestigious prep academy that you possibly can, because you have the privilege to do that, they are still one of few. <laughs> and so as far as the power to have options, you are still limiting yourself because that child becomes in the token for all of us and has to deal with their own level of cultural affirming you know, practices within that setting. Wouldn't it be so much better for us to mobilize as Black professionals, as you know, professional parents, if you want to deem it, and say, we need to have more public quality options across the board so that I don't have to bus my child, you know, 50 miles away from me in order for them to get a good education because my local education is a good one. But at the same time, I'm in an area where I am above the median income. I've got a household with two incomes and yet I'm still having to deal with this nonsense. Like those are the parents that are missing in this conversation because I don't think that they've really connected the dots of of how important it is to value that missing component for us as, as Black people specifically, right? Like, I think we've lost sight of like how we got access to public education and really what it's doing for us. And like to build back in on that activism that like at the middle and high income levels of Black people, we still need to be engaged. And it shouldn't just be, oh, all right, well, I'm gonna send my kid over here because your kid is lonely. Your kid is fighting a battle by themselves. You know what I mean? They need some support. And why should that be their only option when, I mean, we need to do a polling on how many kids, how many black kids go off to prep school and then turn around and go to an, a historically black university because they are they are in need of that connection. I guarantee you, you'll find a high percentage of them because they're isolated and they don't have this kind of universal sense of self in our public education system. You know, you just hit my big issue. This is so this is <laughs> this, you got me riled up now because listen. So when we think about parents a lot of times, so first of all, you said multiple things. Let me back all the way up. I just want to address the point about Moms for Liberty. So Moms for Liberty is about white suburban mothers, women with mostly college education who are married well and have resources, time to be like showing up to things that nobody else has time to show up for. It's a hobby for them. It's a hobby. Mm-hmm. So and, and, you know, like they got time and they got resources and money and whatever, but they go from zero to hosting a convention in Philadelphia where uh, Trump comes and Ron DeSantis comes and they're being courted by the entire Republican apparatus. Meanwhile, when was the last time Biden showed up to something that was exactly the same as that for another group of parents that aren't going to be at the Moms for Liberty? The Republican architecture is very good. So Moms for Liberty has an entire kind of industrial complex making them successful. What's missing for that is a version of that on the progressive side. You opened up another conversation around when we talk about parents so often, especially when we talk about parents of color. People want the downtrodden parent of color to show up Absolutely. and talk so downtrodden. Oh, please. Oh, please don't close my school. You know, it's like, get out of here. Like, you you know, <laughs> they, mm-hmm. they pull the, the, the color purple, you know, all my life I had to fight. You know, well, listen, There are, you just mentioned Jack and Jill fraternities, the sororities, these big organizations, you said black professionals, people act like those parents don't exist. They act like there isn't this group. And just because we have moved to the suburbs or we have a income of which it makes it look like we're part of a different strata, 
we exist in that differently than the people around us, our peers. It's precarious. So when it comes time to choose a school and put our kids into schools, you know, people say, well, you could afford private school. You don't know my situation. <laughs> you don't know. Like, I need great, right. just like everybody else, I need great public schools like, like a lot of people do. And I have multiple kids, you know, but we're not the ones who are courted when it comes to this parent industrial complex. What can we do about that, Jay? What can we do more? You mentioned a part of it, but what can we do to get more middle-class Black folk in the fight? They have to understand that they cannot be complicit in the fight because it'll eventually come back to bite them. I think that we've got a lot of people who, well, I'm not going to say that because our Black folks are exhausted. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, yeah. I, I'm, I'm speaking for the whole race now. <laughs> you know? We're exhausted yeah. either by way of when you do have someone who wants to step forward and do exactly that, be the lead, then that person becomes the end all be all for all of us. And I think that that's where we misstepped from going from civil rights to maybe the 80s and the 90s, where the leadership, our black leadership switched and we didn't put enough value in the collective of us. It was more so, oh, we got that one person over there leading. We got this one person. And, and it became that voice and that voice only. Al Sharpton does not represent the entire voice of the Black community as we know it as, as of today, right? But who does, right? Michelle Obama, Barack Obama, you know what I mean? So there's a disconnect there. At the same time, I think images like what Michelle Obama and Barack Obama are doing are motivating more of our middle-class Black families to realize, yeah, like we've got a say in this. And I think it's up to people like you and I and organizations, national organizations, to really be courting that. Like there are Michelle Obama and Barack Obamas all across this country. I mean, I just had a conversation with, you know, a husband and wife in Connecticut that are like the Obamas of Connecticut, right? Like there is that community that exists. The problem is the people who have the money and the people who literally hold the narrative don't see value in those folks and therefore aren't reaching out to those people because they do exist. So I think it's a, it's a double problem. I think that one, all of us have to do a better job of saying like, this is a, a value issue that we all have that regardless of how much you feel like you arrived or how much you feel like you were taken care of as a Black person, you still have this internal need, internal, I don't know what to call it, to, to make sure that like we all take care of. And I think we're seeing it, you know, it's cool to have power couples now, right? Like Jay-Z and Beyonce, the power couple, they do all these great things and they give back to the black community. Again, like the Obamas, like if you want to look at it from like a more popular narrative, that's there, but we need to connect that to our most fundamental core, which is education. Like everything revolves around education. And that is what I keep saying is like, we can't talk about mental health without realizing that, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, the first thing you need is love and acceptance in order to get to like self-actualization. Where does that come from? That comes from being in a home or being in a community where that you get that. Where does that come from from our kids? Eight hours of the day, they're with the teacher. <laughs> they're in a school, especially if you've got two working parents. So what are they getting at that at that time? We need to do a better job of connecting the dots. So it's not a silver bullet. It is literally a matter of like when we're reimagining 
our schools, we have to reimagine what it means to kind of be, I don't want to call it an activist because some people take that term and think it's, it's radical, right? I don't got time. I don't want to be an activist. I'm not an activist. But it's like, but how are you showing up for your child? You know what I mean? Like you've got to take some vested interest in your black and brown children and be protective over who is speaking to them and who is educating them and who who are they being influenced by and i just really want us to work on that but also being able to call out the bull because again like these moms of liberty someone gave them that platform you know maybe it was one of their husbands who has millions of dollars to say oh let me just give my wife a shout out at the next i don't know what it is but i know we have that in our communities too you just hit it um <laughs> one of the founders husband is actually the leader of the florida republican party so um you know access to all the donors in the world you know but check this out you know like kamala harris's sister was a huge influence with the democratic campaign for hillary clinton right she's got children she's got we we have that network too but you kind of hit it earlier that like that's not sexy in our like the black community itself is not seen as the affluent progressive organized community you know and i, I can't stand that narrative when people say i'm like black community what community are you talking about listen i got to follow up to that so how much of our issue is that we don't have a way for people to participate like if you are busy in life and you've got things going on has someone made it easy for you to do your job as a good citizen. You want to be a good black citizen to your people and all, but you got bills to pay. You have, I, I don't know if anybody can out there can relate to this, but I got multiple kids doing going three different directions. Soccer mom has become crazy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah. where do I, who's made it easy for me to have an on-road to, to give my voice and lend my voice yeah. to black education struggles? I don't think anyone has made it easy. I think one of the things we were talking about too is just how black folks are tired because again, we, we are pulled in all these different directions. I think there needs to be a reprioritization of like, what is it that we value? You know, a lot in a lot of cases, the church still is. People, you know, a lot of black folks still go to church on Sunday. You know, that's still very much a part of their time of reflection, time of prayer and, and fellowship. And I mean, I'm not completely opposed to that idea. I think that that has been historically the avenue that we've seen from a political standpoint that has been influential. You know, there's ministers' councils across this country that, you know, the Democrats and the Republicans on the political side will come to when it comes down to voting. I think that finding opportunities to to, to continue to talk with those groups and not just about the politics, but about the day-to-day, the education struggles, the struggles to to show up in our communities. I think that that's missing a lot for whatever reason. I don't know what that is. I can't, I can't name it, but that still exists. I think this is why bringing up organizations like, you know, Jack and Jill and these sororities and fraternities, I mean, there are hours that you have to put into being a volunteer that you have to commit to, to even be a member. How can we broker relationships with those organizations to show them, you know, give us this amount of civic engagement time, you know, build this into those hours. Those are like some ideas that just kind of flow to the top of my head right now. And coordination. Yeah, it's just, it, but, you know, and it, it does, but it takes a collective group 
And we've had, you and I have been a part of these conversations, right? There's still like these organizations that are thinking about it. I mean, even, you know, the longest, we think about the NAACP. I don't know where they are in their strategic planning and thinking, but maybe this is a, a good, you know, lob for them. Like, hey, think about this. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because I think that when, when we look at the historical context of how we showed up in community, that's where we once were across the board. We did it on health. We did it on education. We did it on workforce. These were our priorities and everybody kind of fell in line, even if it was just by association. And we lost that. So like, how do we get back to that? We lost it in integration. And integration is when I think we really lost the ability for people to see that they were connected to each other, right? Like, like there was a point in time where you had a plumber and a doctor, a carpenter, a teacher and a laborer all in the same block in the same neighborhood. Yes. And because of that, they saw their collective interests, right? There was a point at which many of those people now are free to take off and go somewhere else or whatnot. And that wasn't just a residential move. That was a cultural shift. It created new adjacency for them. Not agency, as our good friend Charles Cole between you and I would say. It wasn't agency. It was being adjacent to something that makes them less likely to see their, their connection to others. I've beat this drum for years. The NAACP, the Urban League, the UNCF, Jack and Jill, the sororities, the fraternities. If I keep going down the list, the major Baptist groups that hold the biggest kind of black national functions, T.D. Jakes, I could keep naming people, right? That if they were to, Oprah and all these folks, Melody Hobson, if they were to take an island for a weekend, right? And say, <laughs> uh -huh. okay, we're going to come up with a plan for Black American children. The people in that room wouldn't have to ask anybody else for anything to make it happen for us. So how much of our problem is, and I won't put you on the spot, but we get mad at white philanthropy a lot for being white philanthropy. <laughs> I don't know how else to put it for not like seeing us in our fullness, but how much of that is just our frustration that Black philanthropy hasn't caught up? Yeah, well, that that is the frustration that Black philanthropy hasn't caught up. That is, that's it. Like, I think that the value is missing, or maybe we haven't done enough to propose. Like, I was thinking about this just with my own kind of trajectory of, of funding and support and, and wanting to be that that organization that's like, I want to, one, be able to kind of independently exist without the support of white philanthropy, you know, if I can, by creating our own revenue streams and just kind of having our own sustainability. And what does that look like? And that would look like me tapping into black philanthropy. My problem is I don't have direct access to that. So I need somebody to give me access. I'll, I'll, once I get there, I can pitch you and, and we good. I know I'm gonna get some money for me, but I don't have the access. I don't have Oprah's number on speed dial, but I, I, I need to know somebody who does. I'll give it to you. <laughs> I will not give yeah, I, know, I know some people who have the numbers too, but they're, they're like, nah, I, I reserve that card for when I need it. Because that's the other thing too. It's like, we know people who have access to those calls, but they're not going to make them on our behalf. But Jay, think about, she opened a school in Africa. She's a billionaire, right? She's a billionaire. Tyler Perry is a billionaire living in a part of the country, Georgia, in Atlanta, where there is nobody at his level more capable doing something radical or radically different for the children of Atlanta and the children of Georgia, right? He has built such an empire that I just don't understand how it hasn't occurred to them to be leaders in this area. It has occurred to them. It's not that it hasn't occurred to them. Trust me, it's occurred to them. And this is where you're talking about stuff that's supposed to be a private black folk conversation because we, <laughs> if, what you're talking about exposes some of our vulnerabilities. Yeah. It's real. It's true because, and, and I don't know how far back we can take this conversation without extending this for another hour. 
But here's the reality. Even as you were talking about what happened with our integration, one of the main issues that I feel like would happen with integration is that we also tried to have assimilation. Like, you know, somehow we forgot who we are. What does it mean to be a Black person? I don't have to be a Black person in in white clothing to exist, right? But that's kind of what happened is that, you know, we had to comfortably integrate, right? You know what I mean? Like, it wasn't like you could just take all of this. And that narrative has definitely changed a lot more. You see it across the country where you're seeing legislation ran by conservatives about, you know, the Crown Act where, you know, you're not going to discriminate against me in 2023 for showing up with my natural hair. How amazing is that, right? What you just, what you're talking about is a cultural issue that I think we have where, again, I think we have to look at our millennial groups of wealthy people because I think their mindset is definitely different from maybe kind of like the Generation X. The Generation X is still, a lot of us are still under that guise of like, I'm just going to quietly just join in and and be a part of this, but I'm not really going to try to shake Mm -hmm. up anything because if I shake it up, it's going, I'm going to lose my shine. I'm going to lose my opportunity where I think more generations now, the younger generations are like, no, I'm about to flip this whole table over. Like I'm coming in with all my fabulousness. You know what I mean? So I think that's a part of it. So I, I think that the black philanthropists that exist don't really know who we are either to really know where to invest, right? Like, is is public education our issue? Okay, well, what are the layers to that? Are we talking about the most poorest, underfunded schools that serve, you know, the, the worst of the worst types of students? You know how many other issues come about when you talk about that outside of education? I mean, Dr. Fuller and I talk about all the time, like our kids are lucky just to be able to live, let alone learn, you know mm-hmm, what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, we do need these convenings of conversations to really get, I'm, I love the idea of getting a group of us in a room and saying, okay, here is what our top priorities are as a culture. But that is kind of the burden of being a Black American is that culturally you you ebb and flow. Your version of Black culture may be entirely different from mine just by way of how we exist in this country. And so maybe coming back to the foundation of that is is where we find our values and, our, and we find a an intersection. You know, one thing I want to ask you about, you know, we want all people of color and all black folks specifically to know what their role is and what their part is in being able to help a revolution. First of all, let's just start with the fact we have to have some form of revolution. We have 8 million black children in the United States who are not getting the education that's setting them up to be like first world participants in the future. So that's just, that has to change. There's no there's no if, and, or but. If you are a leader today who doesn't understand that that has to, to change, you have to leave. You have to be gone. Yes. But when we think about the difference between black philanthropy and, and white philanthropy, I think this might be a very big generalization. But when it comes to education, you have white philanthropists who feel like they have the answer. They have like a thing that they can push. And if they push it, it'll be better for everybody. I think trying to sell that to black investors when they're savvy enough to know there is no answer, really. Like there is no, there's nothing right now that any of us are pushing in education that is 100% going to work or that we know for sure is the answer. We have some answers. But like, you know, if I was trying to make an, well, well let me ask you. You're rich now. All of a sudden, I'm making you a billionaire. What are you going to push now? What am I going to push? You billionaire JR. First of all, you're going to give me some money, right? Yes, absolutely. Good, good, good. Now what you going to do? So I think that we have to revolutionize literacy in this country. I think that that is an important, valuable 
issue and historical framing of who we are as Black people that we have forgotten about. Like there is value in education. Again, I keep telling y'all, it's like, it's at the core of how we all exist. That whether it be by way of you pick the neighborhood that you live in based off of the best education system and you just conform or try to compromise for all those other parts of you that don't show up in that, or you're in a system that you know is not serving you and your families well, but you really have no other option. Either way, the educational freedom and educational advancement that you get that is also going to turn into economic prosperity comes based off of the core of what your education is. And that is about the literacy and actually what are you learning? What are you learning? What is What are you getting in these schools? That is really important. And I think that we've missed that. I think that even when you look at immigrants that come to this country, you will find that every single immigrant family that comes to this country has embedded in their child, you have to get a good education. You have to. So the black community needs to remember that, that like we have to have a good education. And when we don't have a good education, we have to create them. We have to fight for them. We have to find them. We cannot just compromise and accept what we have been given. And I think overall, collectively, that's what we've done. If you have the privilege to go and drive your child 100 miles to a, you know, a great school, you do that. But you shouldn't have to. Yeah, you should have more options. Right. So thinking about your organization, you guys represent black leaders who are looking to solve our education issues through charter schools. Not just charter schools. Okay, well, I'm challenging the name of your organization then. Freedom Coalition for Charter Schools. Well, you can go You can go ahead and challenge it because, again, this will be on record. We are actually changing the name of our organization quite soon. Okay. Because of that. And and I have to explain why. When we started the Freedom Coalition for Charter Schools, we were trying to boldly talk about the fact that black and brown charter schools do not get the same recognition, do not get the same shine to understand the value of what's happening in these schools. And ultimately, across the board, charter schools have worked for black and brown communities. We've had more black and brown kids that graduate from school, have more time, have more learning opportunities. It's it's shown that it's worked. So we try to double down on what's working in charter schools. Here's the reality of what's not working in charter schools. They're not accessible across the board everywhere. And coming out of COVID, there are other options that are starting to pop up. Microschooling, homeschooling, we're seeing more black and brown families that are diving into those. And so what what that is creating is, Options is more of the word that we need to be focused on. How do we create more options across the board? And so, yes, we talk about the ability to have choice, including charter schools, but we don't want to create this kind of like exclusivity around charters because, quite frankly, that's been co-opted, too. You know, and I think, again, when we're talking about the black and brown community, you will have people that tell you, like, I would love to be able to send my child to a great quality school. And right now that may not be a charter school. That may be another option. So that's why we've moved away from just exclusively talking about charters. What do you think makes a great school for us? Having a school that has a cultural affirming curriculum is, I think, a primary importance for for Black families and Brown families. And I speak from that perspective as a parent. My children have been to a traditional public school. They've had an opportunity to spend two years in a culturally affirming charter school, and they are now in a very high-end, affluent, predominantly white area public school again. 
but the value that they've had just in the two years of being at a culturally affirming school between the grades of second to fourth, they've been able to step back into a traditional predominantly white school with a different mentality. They know who they are, the self-actualization of how they show up, even understanding the concepts of math and understanding the connection to Ethiopia and understanding, you know, when we talk about some of the bigger science revolutions that have happened in this country, they can connect that to a leader that looks like them. That has been so valuable just in that short period of time. And so that's number one, is having a culturally affirming curriculum is a huge value that every person of color should have in their education structure. The second one is power. We have to be able to get these parents to have relationships with their schools and to understand the influence that they have at the local level with their school board and holding people accountable and getting them out there when they're not accountable and really accessing and influencing our power to be able to change things when they're not going in the direction we want them to go and and what's most important for us. And I think that there have been a lot of examples that we've seen across this country where that works. I just think that we need to continue to educate people because I think people need to feel a connection and association to that. And so being able to educate them and show them you know, for example, what the parent trigger law did to legislation, you know, in the early 2000s to help influence the ability for people to have more access to different types of education. So things like that exist and we've got to build that in. So power and influence, culturally affirming education. We have to diversify the teacher pipeline. It is a necessity, you know, across the board in our public education, 80% of those teachers are predominantly white women. That's great. But if they're not doing culturally affirming teaching, and if they aren't operating in a way that is going to amplify and elevate these schools that they're serving, they're doing us a disservice more so than showing up and being just a great educator. And so we have to also create spaces where we have more teacher diversity because, again, you know, we have seen that when you have access to someone that looks like you, just just access to them, you show up differently and you, you, you're educated differently. And I don't know if that's a value structure or what that is, but it's, it's real. So like, how do we do a better job of diversifying that, those teacher pipelines, which also I think builds into like our workforce, because I think we lose sight of, you know, apprenticeships and cultivating and developing and curating what we want to be true for ourselves. And there are definitely pipelines that we see that that happens. I mean, a lot of these teachers started off in some type of fellowship and they've grown and and they've they've been able to advance their leadership. We need to do those same things in our communities as well so people can feel connected. So like if I have a high school senior right now that's probably going off to college and not really sure what they want to do, how can I get them to maybe tap into like some type of teacher apprenticeship program where they can teach for a while until they can continue to evolve and learn what they want to do next. But they are also adding value back into the community that they came from. They're adding value back into the classrooms. It is the whole reinvesting in our community approach. Yeah, I know we're going to wrap soon, but I hate to throw you a provocative thing at the end. But you just said so much that I think kind of resonates with me about what do we do to go forward. You mentioned the word pipeline, and I feel like pipeline of everything. We need a pipeline of uh, teachers and educators. We need a pipeline of principals and school leaders. We need a pipeline of school builders and school real estate people. We need a pipeline of black advocates and advocacy, a pipeline of black philanthropy. It's like we need this pipeline because none of this is going to happen right now. Nothing's going to happen right away, but we need to know that we're on track. And the thing that we need to be on track for, I think, this is just me, one guy talking, I will know we have power 
when we're not dependent on others to educate our children in the way we are now. Now, on the on the right, if I'm a black parent in Loudoun County somewhere, and all the white parents are going crazy and they're my, all my neighbors or whatnot, the only way I have power is to show up with them and be down with what they're down for. And now I'm not with my own people. I'm just blending in. I'm, I'm like the, the black soccer mom who gets to hang with the white soccer moms and show up at Loudoun County, you know, talking about gifted and talented, right? And on the left, the left version of that is if our teachers are striking and they're asking our kids not to participate in any education because they want a pay increase on the left, now I got to join them because... First of all, on the right and the left, what they're going to do is ignore the black folks that don't agree with them. So if you're a parent, if you're a parent on the left in a leftist city and you don't agree with the powers that be and the, the teachers, then you're just out of luck. You, you, the only way to join and have power in that group is to be down for what they're down for and say what they say. And, and you know, this thing we talked about, like what you mentioned, white women are the majority of the teachers. They're also the majority of the parents that create this kind of social bond between public schools and the public. White women make the majority of educational decisions for their children, and they also own the educational apparatus in the United States. So it's a great for them and their children. I will know we have power when we don't, when that doesn't even matter to us, where we have enough of our own infrastructure to educate our own children. We're not begging for, black people are the only people that wake up every morning and turn their kids over to somebody else for education. We're the only group in the United States that has to do that, right? We have to do it. We have to do it. It's, it's, and it wasn't always the case, right? We used to have black teachers, black schools, black principals, black pedagogy, black ways of assessing kids, and we were making progress. The history gets told a little different. That's a, we still have it. We have it, but I think that's the thing that we don't know is the goal expanding that like the owning the means of education will make us free yeah. owning the total means of education that is freedom for us people use words like liberty and freedom all the time in education world it is not liberty or freedom if we don't get to decide what our kids learn where they learn it how they learn it from who they learn it from in what context blah 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 that's power and i don't want freedom anymore I don't want educational freedom i don't want educational i don't want any of these fancy terms you know what i want jay what do you want? i just want power I just want power. You just want power. So, so replace all them other words. Yeah. Just take all them other words, take them off your brochures for whatever organization you're working for. Freedom, liberty, blah, 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 justice. Uh, 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 uh. I just want power. Do you know what the sources of power are? Tell me. Tell me. Tell me. <laughs> so in the or so in the organizing world, yeah. which is a lot of where you know our our big unions and stuff come from, when we teach about power. We usually say there's either three to five sources, but the main three that I always speak about is status, money, and people. You've got to have, you know, a substantial amount of money because once you have a substantial amount of money, you can have the power to do whatever you want. You've got to have status. You have to have a title, you know, president of the United States. And you have to have people. You got to have people that are ride or die for you regardless. And that is why Trump has been so successful because he was able to master the trifecta of power, status, money, and people. You know, MAGA is a thing, right? Like, and those folks, they don't care if he gets indicted. They don't care about anything he does. They are going to ride for Trump regardless. So to the degree of power is a matter of looking if we wanted to look at those sources and figure out how do we cultivate those sources within our communities, that's the way we could do it. And I think we're not far from that. I think that we have a tremendous amount of people power. I think with the money power, we depend a lot on our Black entertainment networks, right? Because that's where we only see money. But there are major Black financial institutions looking at our historically Black colleges and universities and the power that they have shows up in those spaces too. So I think we have to revolutionize 
the way we think about our our core independence and power itself and look at what we're talking about. So I think what we're missing is that that money and redefining that status power, because I think what we could have gotten out of, you know, like the civil rights movement and, and the advances that we've had over the last 50 or 60 years is we could have been putting people in positions that would know the value of coming back to your community and reinvesting in your community. But what we didn't get, we didn't get that. We got people who are more happy just being next to the white folks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You know, that I'm not like those other people type of thing, right? Mm-hmm. That became okay. And that is no longer okay. I mean, for the longest time, that was taught to us as being the measure of success. That was, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, it was taught to us, it was ingrained in us, you will be fully civilized when you get closer to this and further from your own people. And we still pitch a lot of that now. And it's still still an avenue to success. If you want to be successful in the world and you don't care about your own people, that's a a way to go. Well, listen, I want people to know what your big task is for next year. I'm not going to say the name of your organization because you're about to change it. So... (laughs) FCCS. That won't change. FCCS will not change. Okay. I Mm -hmm. thought it would be something like MABA, you know, make America black again. So, you know. (laughs) That's dope. (laughs) Because when you just just schooled me on the three sources of power and you said Trump all had them, I was like, oh, so we need MABA then. Uh, (laughs) I got it. Okay. Uh, Because we'll have all three. So looking forward to next year. First of all, the work that you all do. What's going to be your big push next year? What are you going to work on? Oh, wow. So our big push next year is making sure that our parents obtain some access to power by way of their influence with voting or just civic engagement and education and getting them to show up at the polls in different ways, whether it be accountability for who's already in office or creating pipelines for people to get into office. So we're doing a lot of work around investing in specific parts of our regions where we know that can be successful. And so giving power to our parents and and influence in that way, we are going to continue to double down on the need to expand black and brown options. Getting back to what you were saying about maybe what we lost in integration, how do we curate you know, more black and brown schools, not because we're trying to reverse the integration that's happened, but because we see the value in having a black teacher and a brown teacher. We see the value of staying within our communities and building our communities from the ground up and having education be the core of that. So opportunities to support and advance policy that is going to expand black and brown Public options, public being the key word where we don't have to, you know, spend an arm and a leg of our wealth that we haven't created yet <laughs> to make sure that our children are, are adequately educated. So making sure that we are investing in public options, public quality options, and we're holding school leaders accountable. I would love to see in 2024 a national platform where school choice for public education it really includes a, an, a concept of options outside of what we see traditionally given to us. And we're going to continue to push that and hopefully push it at the national level. Biden has yet to be able to say what his education platform, because it's not sexy. Well, how can we make it sexy? How can we get more parents similar to the Moms of Liberty to, to step up and say, we value education. This is important to us. And this is important to the Black community because of X, Y, and Z. And I think the last thing, so we talked about Parent and parent influence and parent power. We talked about public education and making sure that that's a a national narrative that becomes sexy. This idea of choice, right? And this is this segues into our name change. I think that we find too often people are able are are quickly able to demonize words, a co-op words to have different meanings than what they really do. And so when we've talked about charter schools for Black and Brown 
people who've, cho- who've chosen charter schools, we've chosen charter schools because they've worked, mm-hmm. because they've been mm-hmm. successful, not because they're part of some conservative billionaire narrative that's, that people have been pushing for the last 15 years. The statistics show for itself that it works. Here's the problem. Not all of our black and brown communities have access to charter schools. Not all of our black and brown communities have access to quality schools. So in 2024, in the years to come, it is really, again, pushing how do we create access? How do we create more options across the board, including charter schools, because we know charter schools work. I'm going to give you one example of where this is like, and I know we got we to gotta stop, but so in Connecticut right now, right, one of our charter schools, 100% graduation rate, they've had dual credit accreditation in their schools. All their kids are going off to a four-year university, doing doing an excellent job. That same school got denied the ability to scale and open up a new school by a local representative. Mm. How is that even possible, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that Mm -hmm. that school should be the beacon of what it looks like to run a good public education system. Is that school Black-led? And that school is Black-led. Wow. And then to add insult to injury, the governor of Connecticut is now trying to use the same tools of dual accreditation within the public education system that this school has been doing for several years now, but not giving funding to this school because this school is a charter school. So making making policy around doing what they're doing well in public education, but excluding it from charter schools. So that's the type of stuff that's just outrageous. To be clear about this example that you're giving too. So when you say these people are standing in the way what party are they with in that particular scenario? Oh, so damn. <laughs> yeah. Are they conservatives or are they progressives? No, no. You know, they're progressives, so-called progressives. Yeah, so-called progressives. But they are more interested. They love the system that fed their parents more than they love the kids that are being damaged by that system right now today. And this is the thing. I think people who get on my nerves the most are people, when a system works well for a group of people, they become blind to how it hurts other people. So public school worked for me and it got me to it. Well, good for you. Yeah. Good for you, damn it. <laughs> you know, good. I'm happy. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Some of us didn't have that, like, you know, little house on the prairie experience, you know? Yeah. Anyways, well, listen, you are doing so much powerful work. I love the fact that you do it. I love the fact that you do it so well. Thank you with lots of poise and intelligence in ways that just inspires us to know, like, we need more like that, where I could just look at somebody and be like, oh, yeah, that's going to be a problem for the system, right? Like, that person is <laughs> going to be a problem for everybody else. We need more problems. We need people to create problems, right? Yes, yes. And you're like the best example I have right now of somebody that I think has just got it all working at once. Oh, well, thank you. Come back anytime on the show when you um, when you guys are moving forward something. Come back anytime. Yes, good. And you know what my motto is? I'm going to come back and come back with more people so you can see that I'm not doing this by myself. <laughs> so next time we'll ha- we're going to have like Jack and Jill on here and we're going to talk about all they all them and, and how they're showing up. <laughs> bring Mava with you. Bring the Mava crew. Bring Mava. Yeah, bring Mava yeah, with you. exactly. Sounds awesome, Chris. All right, well, listeners, we appreciate you all for listening again every week and please share this show with folks that you think need to hear it. And if you haven't uh, already, please subscribe to the show and leave a review of it. We appreciate you as always. This has been another episode of the Citizen Stewart Show. The Citizen Stewart Show is a production of the Branch Media Podcast Network. I'm Chris Citizen Stewart. You can follow me at Citizen Stewart. You can follow Ravi 
at Ravi M. Gupta. You can follow all of the branches podcast at The Branch Media on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And check out our website at thebranchmedia.org. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review, give us a five-star rating, and subscribe to the show so you can join us every Tuesday for more of the Citizen Stewart Show.